As we were just singing parts of Mary's Magnificat, we are about to hear it proclaimed according to the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter. Her hymn, her song of blessing and praise, comes in the context of her being with child, at least by those around her under suspicious circumstances. And apparently she left her town of Nazareth and went to see her cousin Elizabeth, who was already with child, uh, six months with child, for solace and encouragement and, I suspect, for some refuge. The text lifted up is the word of God. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. By whatever standard of success, whatever benchmark we hold up for what it looks like to do well, God's coming into the world should blow our expectations to smithereens. God, the creator of the universe, the holy other, the transcendent divine creator of all that is, was, and ever shall be, the presence of infinite and eternal goodness comes into the world by becoming human and entering in through the seemingly and completely insignificant and even questionable lives of Mary and Joseph. By the measure we used to keep score compared to all the other possibilities and opportunities and even all the other couples that God could have chosen, at least as the world judges these things, Mary and Joseph were, as hyperbolic as it sounds, complete losers. I'm not trying to be irreverent here with cheap Protestant stabs at Catholic doctrine. I know that Mary is the mother of Jesus and has been venerated for generations in the Catholic Church. She is seen as divine in her own right. Her name is given as a first name to many reverent Catholic girls and boys upon their birth. Mary Margaret, Mary Emily, Mary Grace. There is even a whole doctrine called Maryology devoted to her. 
It turns out that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which most of us believe, is about Jesus' Immaculate Birth with Mary being a virgin, is actually about Mary's birth, one generation removed, born as a human, yet unlike any other human, one generation removed from Jesus, Mary, it is said, was born sinless and was sinless all her life. The point I am making is that we need to do some deconstruction and to see through this veneration that now makes it hard for us to see what was really going on for Mary with her family and with her friends and her village folk. Her pregnancy was suspicious at best and a scandal at worst. And Joseph, who after the first couple of chapters in Matthew and Luke, basically ends up an absentee father. He is so complicated a character in the church that many of our depictions of him, like the one on our tapestry hanging from the balcony, is of an old man so old that he would have no intimate, passionate needs himself. He is depicted as more like a grandfather than a husband to ensure that Mary's sinfulness will remain in place. But the truth is, by the world's standards, they were losers. I finally learned how to do this when my daughters critiqued me. I used to think when the song said an L in the middle of your forehead, it was this. So for the next months, they would salute me with, hey, dad, how's it going? It's this, an L in the middle of your forehead. And Mary even confesses as much in her poem. She says, I have looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. And the circumstances around this confirm it. A young girl, barely past puberty, under quite suspicious circumstances, engaged to basically a day laborer, not yet married, but engaged, is pregnant. Put that in perspective. While pregnancy out of wedlock these days is no big deal, in Mary's day it was punishable by stoning to death. We know what's going on because we can look back through the whole story, but Mary and Joseph only have a dream to go by, and those around them don't even have that. Think about it. Think about it. God chose them. Not rich, but poor. Not powerful, but humble. Not strong, but weak. On some level, even feeling, at least from those around them, shame. We become so comfortable with these stories that we've lost the scandal that the writer does not want us to miss. The story of God in Jesus Christ coming 
into our sometimes scandalous, often dark, always a little messy, mostly complicated world, not from the top to the bottom, but from bottom up. Through these two completely, at the time, insignificant parents in the scandal of scandals that ends up being the very good news, the very best good news there is. It should rock our world. And it, it rocks it with joy and good news. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The good news that God and God's infinite mercy and grace enters the world where we are broken, lowly, lonely, afraid, and even ashamed, where we feel deep down that we do not measure up. Not where we're successful, not where we're on top of the heap, not where we're strong, but that other place. You know that place, that place I'm talking about, that place that we just as soon not let anybody in on, that we don't really want to see in ourselves, that place where we just don't feel like we stack up, we measure up to whatever standard it is that we hold for us to live by, that should place. You know that place I'm talking about that we hide from everybody in our world except maybe our therapist and then we only reveal it after about three and a half years every week of meeting with them? That place? Yes. That's the place. And this story of Mary and Joseph proclaim that it is in just this place that God chooses to come. It is the confirmation, as Paul said, that while we were still sinners, Christ was born to us. Christ lives in us. Christ died for us. And for us, speaking for myself, I think I'm speaking for you. For us who are scorekeepers, who keep careful statistics on the game of life for how we are measuring up compared to others, at some level in each of us we feel like this. And what we are reminded of is that God, in God's infinite wisdom, comes into the very place that we feel like this and tells us that By God's score, we do measure up. It's called forgiveness and grace. For those of us who keep this great score in the game of life, the balance sheet has been canceled, and we do now measure up. Inasmuch as we are a child of God, do we measure up, but even more in the sense that God loves us and graces us even when we do not measure up. And the way God keeps score, you see, is to show us that we are worth every suffering, loving, breathing, and dying moment Jesus spent in his short life to show us. Now, I know you've heard this from me before. Every sermon I preach is in some way about this. 
Maybe I'm just trying to convince myself week after week, but maybe that's what it takes. I'm not sure I can stress this enough, especially in our culture where the stress to be good and perfect or spotless is so epidemic that it's causing all kinds of psychological, biological, and spiritual bodily harm. Not only are depression rates up, but so are suicide rates in the last 30 years. I think it has to do with the way we are always keeping score. I'm not suggesting that suicide is the result of a spiritual illness about self-loathing entirely. Mostly, I suspect it's about mental illness, which means that most people who take their life should not be held accountable. Martin Luther broke the church's tradition on looking at suicide as a mortal sin when he wrote, I do not share the opinion that suicides are certainly to be damned. My reason is that they do not wish to kill themselves, but are overcome by the power of darkness. They are like a man who is murdered in the woods by a robber. That said, there is, I think, a spiritual illness to suicide that feeds whatever psychological or chemical or biological illness one may have. And what it feeds is that lie, that great deceit that we have all bought into. And that is the way we judge ourselves, keeping score through achievement, comparing ourselves to others or anyone else who on the outside, in Facebook at least, looks like they're doing great while we know on the inside of us we're not. For those of us who've been raised in a culture of perfection and shame where the college we go to and the grades that we make, the car we drive, the house we live in or the neighborhood, the job that we have or even the church we attend somehow determines our self-worth, there is always, you see, someone with a bigger boat, and we know it. This may be why white people are the most suicidal group, rising by 30% in the last 15 years across the board, 43% with men and 63% with women. Ironically, black people are the lowest race prone to suicide. And one theory is that white people tend to live by some illusion of needing to measure up to some standard, while black people told all their lives that because of their race they never will measure up don't really feel the same stress to. But I'm sure it's more complicated than just that. This high expectation of achievement adds to the increase in suicide clusters in high-achieving communities like Palo Alto, Alto, which have four to five times the average suicide rate. The pressure they feel, my daughter works there, the pressure they feel to achieve academically, athletically, and socially is off the charts. New York Times ran a story about this a couple of years ago, about this phenomenon, pointing out this suicide cluster going on at University of Penn with an expose of an undergraduate named Catherine DeWitt. 
Mrs. DeWitt recalled how upset she had been when she made a 60 on a calculus exam, which was completely uncharacteristic for her. She was at least thought herself as an a, a straight-A student. Ms. DeWitt said, I had a picture of my future, and as that future deteriorated, I stopped imagining another future. The pain of being less than what I thought I ought to be was unbearable. The only way out, I reasoned, with the twisted logic of depression, was death. Ironically, Catherine DeWitt got it half right. The only way out is death, but not death to one's body. But instead, death to our false and narcissistic sense of self that believes, A, we are either capable of being perfect, or B, that we are so bad, we are unredeemable. Either way, we have made a self-judgment about our worth. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus breaks into our world in the midst of a couple of losers like Mary and Joseph proving that by God's standards, at least, maybe not the world's, but by God's standards of mercy and love, they and we measure up to untold potential. And I don't mean that in terms of achievement. I mean that in terms of magnifying God. This is what it means to be born again. This is the death we must die and be born again. It's the end of our keeping score and a new understanding of how we have been transformed by the grace of God into a new being. Think about it. That means you won't wake up every single morning thinking about what you do or do not do in order to make yourself feel worthy. Being born again means we just are by the grace of God. Here's an interesting statistic. Evangelical Protestants are seven times more likely than Catholics to be suicidal. Maybe because mistakenly they think, we think, that once we are baptized by the Holy Spirit saved and born again, then we should be completely transformed into a new level of perfection so that when the months go by after that saving event and we end up still doing the same stupid, destructive stuff that we have always done, we either think we are really not saved or that we are really way worse than we thought. We can mask it with self-righteous, you know that righteousness, that kind of Um, goody, good, religious righteousness that we put on ourselves in order to hide that part we don't want people to see. At the furthest extreme, it's ISIS. It ends up doing violence on others because if we can project our own violence on ourselves off on somebody else, it, it gives us a way out. We can do it that way or we can become self loathing or depressed. There's a third option, gratitude and thanksgiving, which turns to joy. 
This is joy, Gaudete Sunday, and the whole foundation and basis of joy is built on our gratitude for God's gracious love and act in Jesus Christ. That's the ground of true joy. I'm not talking about happiness, I'm talking about joy that overflows, that overcomes, that blows out all of our constraints, where we are broken and sinful and sometimes brutish and ugly. God loves us still and even causes us in some strange, divine kind of way to begin to love ourselves. And if we can finally get over our big, bad selves and accept this, joy. 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 Friends, the spiritual and theological truth is that there is a defect in each of us. It's called human And there is an image of God in each of us. That true, too, is called human. We are all broken and self-deceived. We are all mired in what theologians call original sin. And yet this story of God and Jesus coming into this messy, sinful, broken place is the goodest good news there is because it is just like pouring the Spirit into us and giving us a whole new reality of life built on joy. Here's another statistic that may be interesting. Women who attend church once a week are five times less likely to take their lives than women who don't. There's no such statistic for men who attend church once a week, I guess because it's too hard to find enough of them to, sorry, just kidding. Some of it may be because you find in church a community and friends, and an association when you would otherwise feel alienated and alone. But the real reason, I think, is that the message that they receive in church week after week, hopefully, is that they are told that they do not, we do not have to measure up to God's love for us. That no matter what we do or do not do, Week after week, we are reminded that God loves us and forgives us still. And while hearing this is important, it does not come close to experiencing it. We can proclaim this as preachers till we're blue in the faith. Faith. In the face. That works. Faith. But an idea of God does not substitute for the experience and reality. This encounter with the living God who comes to us like Mary and Joseph when we are least expecting it as one who comes to us unknown and where we think at least that we least deserve it. If all we can do is hear this, having not yet experienced it, then Advent, if it's anything, is to prepare the way for God to come to us. It is about getting ready, expecting, waiting for God's Spirit to, yes, impregnate us with something new and Christ-like in the very place we just as soon keep hidden, just as it was possible for Mary So is it possible for losers like us 
joy, joy, joy. And let all the people say, Amen.